0: Hi, this is Sam Chamberlain, and welcome to Things to Ponder, the sermon podcast from St. Mary's United Church of Christ in Silver Run, Maryland. Follow along with St. Mary's at stmarysucc.org or on Facebook and Instagram. Wishing you peace and good, my friends. We have been talking about liturgy over the last couple of weeks, liturgy as a communal activity. We do it in the reality of the Trinity. God is community. And we do it in the community that is this place and is the church universal, past, present, and yes, even future. We do our work of prayer. We do our work of liturgy as a community, a small local community, for the community because what we do is public service. This is the work that we undertake when we bow our heads and when we lift our hearts. And so we talked about in the first week about what liturgy is. Last week, we talked about gathering. What is the community that gathers and how do we understand that? Today, I want to continue this conversation by saying as soon as you become aware of community, as soon as you define a community, whether it is local or universal, the next thing you have to talk about is communication, communication. Community and communication. Like those words sound similar. It's because they do. They come from the same space. A community must be able to communicate. And here's where I want to begin this morning that ours, this particular Christian faith, is a faith created by, preserved by, and passed on by words. We are a word heavy faith. There are plenty of other faiths that are not as word heavy. You can go explore them if you want. But ours has always leaned on the power of the word to do the work of faith. It is eternally significant, and I will never stop being amazed by the fact that the Apostle John tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So from the very beginning of the church, our ancestors observed the work of God in their lives and then sought to tell others about it by using words. We hear about the Israelites being liberated from Egypt. What's the first thing they do? They wander through the wilderness, they go to Sinai, and what does God do? He gives them the Ten Commandments, He gives them the law. Words. Jesus starts his ministry. The first thing he's reading and quoting the scriptures. First thing he says is, These words have been fulfilled in your hearing. And the first words that he says to us is, Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Pentecost happens, and what's the first thing the apostles do? They start preaching. As the church takes root, the gospel writers immediately began to write their holy histories of Jesus, as well as the histories of the church, which is what we get in the book of Acts. And they discipled one another through their writings. As we read through the letters of John and Peter and Paul, they are discipling one another with words. And this community didn't abandon the Hebrew scriptures, but rather they were buoyed and supported by them. To worship was and still is to receive and offer words. The Catholic scholar Robert Louis Wilkin puts it this way. He says, language defines who we are. It molds how a people think, how they see the world, how they respond to people and events, even how they feel. Language is an indispensable carrier of the church's faith and is handed on from generation to generation. Put it this way. To be a Christian means we must care about words. And we must select our words with care and with consideration. So as we do the work of worship then, which words shall we choose? And some of you at this part are rolling your eyes going, Oh my gosh, he's going down the professor trail. I'm trying not to. But I would offer that our choices around language are key to the conversations that we are having around what it means to be church today. Because we have many options for the language that we might choose for our worship. Consider, we could choose the language of culture, the zeitgeist. What is popular and what is relevant? And we could speak in those terms. We could choose the language of business, the language of capitalism, the language of consumerism. Which says, if you, if you get this, you can be that. It is the language of buy and sell, the language of exchange. We could use the language of feelings and opinions to say, well, this is my truth. Tell me about your truth. We could use the language of information. Here is what, here's, what, here's the data you need to know. We could use the language of propaganda, which says, watch out for those people. And if we were careful and thoughtful, we could find communities under the name of Christian which would use each of those kinds of language in various ways. They are languages that are familiar to us. They are relevant in worship at home and in the workplace. It makes it easy to come from outside of worship into worship. Here we're going to use the same kind of language. You don't have to learn a new language. And we can use this all these languages for inspiration, purpose, wisdom, intellectual curiosity. We can use them in ways good and bad, but all of them are useful. But that's just it, isn't it? When we do this... We use language rather than being formed by language. Hear that again. When we do this, when we boil down the church's language to information or propaganda or consumerism, we use language rather than are formed by it. Because none of those kinds of language require us to deal with God. None of those languages require us to have face-to-face time with the Lord of heaven and earth. We can talk about God and never actually have to deal with God. And when we do that in worship, we go right around relationship, which is at the heart of liturgy, and we go right around our work of public service. Which is why, friends, I'm going to make the argument, and I feel this burden as much as I feel anything, that our primary language for our faith and therefore for our worship is the language of the Bible. You're like, duh, Reverend, that's what you do. That's not quite that simple. Because the language of the Bible is the experience of God's relationship with God's people. At its core, it is about relationship. It is the reflection of people who have walked with God The God who was identified as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that same God who was identified as the one that Jesus called Father, it is God and community. That is what the Bible is. It is the God who walks with us on the road and expounds the scriptures to us. The Bible is relational at its core. It is alive with emotion, with narrative, with brokenness, with victory, and yes, underneath of it all, with love. Love. And the Bible can be very intense because of that love. The Bible is all about how people have connected to God. But how these words work is as important as what they say. And here's the difference. The Bible doesn't just explain a relationship. The Bible does something. Something. Words matter to our faith because as we watch God, as we observe what God is doing in the world, what we discover is that when God says things, things are created. When God says things, there is a reality that is brought about that otherwise would not have existed. Consider the first spoken words of Scripture. What is the first thing we hear? God says, Let there be light. And what was there? There was light. You all know the rest of the story, but the point is well taken. When God speaks, a new reality is made. If we doubt this, consider the words of Jesus himself. Jesus, as we said in that first, Jesus gets up, he reads the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and then he says, these words have been fulfilled in your presence. The act of reading them created the reality. Throughout all the stories of the New Testament, Jesus is healing people. He looks at the one man, he says, rise, take up your mat and walk. Never touches him, never gives him medicine, never, never checks out Medicare to see if they'll pay for it. No, no, no. He says, rise, take up your mat and walk. And what does the guy do? He takes up his mat and he walks. These words, spoken in faith and received in faith, create the reality they describe. The words that we use are powerful because they create a reality. Now consider, consider the language we use here, okay? There's a line that we often say, you've already said it once, but I'm gonna gonna come to that in a second. Consider that every time we stepped into a new part of the worship, we said, what's up, y'all? That would be very colloquial. You would feel, you know, you'd be like, this guy thinks he's from Georgia, he's not, but it's okay. But we say, okay, yeah, I get he's being very friendly. It's language that you would immediately understand. It's language that is relevant. But no, we don't say, what's up, y'all? We say, the Lord be with you. It's not just a greeting, y'all. Consider what is spoken when we say, the Lord be with you, and you respond and also with you. It's calling to mind God's presence as we get ready to do the work that we are going to do. It is The Lord be with you. As we say this prayer, God is listening. And you say back and also with you, you say to the reader, to the one who is leading this, say, as you read it, you are reading the words of God. It's a whole different reality. And consider where these words come from. They are not just ancient language that we're like, well, you know, the Lord be with you because that's what they said back in England in like 1600. No, 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 no. They come from the scriptures. The most important time we hear the Lord be with you is when the angel appears to Mary and the angel says, the Lord is with you. And when, when the angel says that to Mary, it is not just, hey, you're in good standing with God, Is there is a reality about you that has just changed your life forever. The Lord is with you and you will bear him to the world. So consider that. If we pull that language from that story and consider what it does for us here, lay reader, when you read, you will bear Christ to the people. Pastor, speaking to myself here, but anyone who occupies this pulpit, when we break bread and wine and we say the Lord be with you and also with you, what we are saying is that in that bread and wine, you will bear Christ to the world. We stand, when we say this, in the place of Mary. These words in our mouths create the reality that we declare. And so as we said last week, when people say liturgy is boring, what are we even talking about? Because we're using the same kind of language that created the very heavens and the earth, and we're speaking that into one another's lives. Boring? What? It's boring if it's just about discovering things about God. It's not boring if it's about God, not getting God into our story, but opening up our minds to discover what God is doing in the world. The scriptures, then, are written not from a place of information or propaganda. The scriptures are written from a place of meditation, reflection, and critical thinking. Consider the gospel writers, and I'm reminded of them as I stare at the image of St. Mark in our window in the back. St. John over here, St. Luke. Oh, yeah, St. Matthew's on the other side. I always forget the angel is Matthew. As we look at those gospel writers, we think about what they did when they sat down to write these stories. They weren't writing information or writing flyers to be dropped from a plane. They were meditating and reflecting on this story that they had experienced in their lives. In other words, they were people who wrote the Bible spiritually, spiritually inspired by the Holy Spirit. And our conviction is that they were writing and communicating through that inspiration. The Spirit filled them up and guided these words. They are human words, yes, but they are filled with the presence of God. The Spirit was opening them up to what God was doing in the world, and they were inspired to share that with others. They weren't writing to tell us what to do, Because there's very little in the way of, you know, these and thou's and thou shalt and thou shalt not. There's very little of that, actually. They were writing to tell us what God was already doing and to invite us into that truth. And so if these words are to create the realities that we believe they can create, then we must listen as they wrote in the Spirit, inspired with the intention of being open to God's reality, and participating in that reality. We can't just hear, and we can't just say. We can't just try to hear it with the ears of entertainment, or the ears of information, or the ears of propaganda, or the ears of self-improvement. And since the word became flesh, we can't even just listen with our heart or with our mind or with our soul, however we understand these things. No, we have to listen to these words with all of us. We have to listen with our minds and our hearts and our bodies and our imaginations and our wills. We have to listen with our spirits, which is all of us. This is hard to comprehend because we're not practicing this kind of listening. And here's what breaks my heart about the church today is that that kind of listening is one of the greatest gifts we have to offer the world because we have boiled everything down to data and it's killing us. But when we listen with ourselves, when truth seeps into our whole beings, lives change. So we need a metaphor to help us understand this. How do we help communicate what it looks like for the whole gospel to get into our whole body? Not intellectual curiosity, but shaping how we live. And this is why this is a great message to preach today, because the metaphor we are given is eating. Did you hear those two readings? Did you did you stop and go, What? Like Debbie, are you reading the right verse. I'll tell it from this story, I'll tell it from the apostle John. John, who wrote the revelation is having this mystical experience. God invites him into this contemplative environment, and it is beyond our explanation. It's why Revelation is so hard for us sometimes. But when you read the opening chapters of Revelation, there is beauty and truth just pouring out. And John gets to experience this and observe this. It's this beautiful sermon, a message. It's, and it's not even just a sermon. It is a reality that is pouring out. And so John grabs his pen to write it all down. And he's scribbling, scribbling, scribbling. You've been there. You've had this thing that you just had to capture. And he's scribbling as much as he can. And this vision kind of comes to an end. And, it's end. and an angel comes to him, it says, and presents him a scroll. And John, in my imagination, is saying, okay, I'm going to take that scroll to him. I'm going to add it to the end. I've got to write everything down in this scroll. And the angel says, oh, no, 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 no. You're not writing this. The angel says, no, eat this scroll and go. Speak to the house of Israel. It's bizarre. Like this is like first grader eating their homework kind of bizarre. Eat this scroll and go. Speak to the house of Israel. God earlier in Ezekiel tells Ezekiel to do the same thing. Hands that here are the words I want you to say to the house of Israel. And Ezekiel, like all of us, wants to read it. And God's like, no, you're going to swallow that bad boy. And then you're going to go speak. You are going to get it down into you. The scriptures are to be meditated, chewed up, assimilated into the tissue of our lives. Because friends, don't we want this gospel to come out, not just in our thoughts, but in our words and in our actions. We don't just want to hear a good story, we want to be this good story. And like a cow chewing its cud like a dog meditating over a bone, which, by the way, is the language that this Bible uses. There are multiple images of a lion or a dog chewing rigorously on, and the word is meditate. They met, the lion meditates on its meal. Like that lion, we are to savor these words, to extract the nutrition and let it into our very DNA. We are to meditate As a community, we are to take this rich fare and enjoy its goodness. And even its bitterness is sweet to the stomach, to the soul. It is good for us. We take it into our lives, and then we become what it is we have eaten. The author Eugene Peterson, a hero of mine, puts it this way. He says, Holy Scripture nurtures the holy community as food nurtures the human body. Christians don't simply learn or study or use Scripture. We assimilate it, take it into our lives in such a way that it gets metabolized into acts of love, cups of cold water, missions into all the world, healing and evangelism and justice in Jesus' name, hands raised in adoration of the Father, feet washed in company with the Son. Friends, if we as a community... Merely want to do good in the world, to say that we've left a positive mark, any language will do. Inspiration, motivation, consumerism can get you going and can get the world going at any particular time. I mean, goodness, we even have corporations now where you buy one and you donate to somebody else. So even the language of consumerism can get us to do something good in the world. Any language will suffice if we're about just doing something positive. But that's not what the church ever set out to do. Of course we do good. But we set out to proclaim resurrection. You understand that's different, right? We set out to proclaim a new creation, a new reality. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And if we are serious about that, there is only one language that will help us there. And it is the language that has been handed down to us of those who have lived this reality for generations and for millennia. The only way we become a people that proclaims resurrection is by listening meditatively, seriously to our very own scriptures. Taking in these holy words, contemplating them, living in and with them. And so, friends, in our liturgy, we must must take these words, these powerful words, with great seriousness and with equally great joy. Because it is God who speaks when the Holy Scriptures are read in church. And because God speaks, lives change. Therefore, the language of Scripture, friends, not only should be a part of what we do in worship, it needs to saturate every part of our church. Our leaders are to be awash in these stories, modeling renewed life, meditative life, modeling seriousness around these scriptures, and finding joy in them. We need to do leadership that is less, here's our plans, and more loaves and fishes. More, here's what we want to do, and more constantly saying to one another, the Lord is with you, the Lord is with us, reminding one another this essential truth. Consider worship leaders who don't just read the words. If we read them faster, maybe Sam will preach less and we can get out faster. No, 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 no. Consider worship leaders who don't just read but who proclaim, preach good news. Imagine being a community of hearers who take it in and live it out. Scriptures and liturgy, personal and public will, friends, bring about the new creation in many beautiful and diverse ways. It will. It can be all of those things. The only thing it cannot be for this community is, meh. It cannot be that. The scriptures can be familiar, but they can never be rote. The scriptures can be mysterious, but they can never be inconsequential. The scriptures can be hard. We've been talking. They can be really hard, but they cannot be rejected. And it's the great sadness of my ministry how so many churches and believers are just kind of meh to the words that birthed our very Protestant existence. But we, St. Mary's, we can do otherwise and give back to the world a great gift because we can believe that when we speak these words, somebody's life is being changed. might not be ours today, but somebody's life is being changed because we do our public service. We can believe that when we say these things, the kingdom is being born in the world, is breaking forth in ways that may not be necessarily for us right here, but it's breaking out somewhere. But it's breaking out somewhere. We can believe the power at work in this space is more real than the powers and principalities we see in the world. And in this way, we too can be those disciples on that road to Emmaus, which we read in this gospel. Jesus explains to them the word and Jesus is saying, I'm gonna show you all these ways that the scriptures you're reading are all about me, but they didn't recognize Jesus quite yet, and they pull off to the side of the road at the end of the night, and they break bread, and they eat it, and they discover that it's been Jesus walking with them the whole time. And these words are some of the most powerful and most inspirational for me in all the Bible. They, these disciples say, were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road, while he was opening the scriptures to us? May the scriptures burn in our hearts as well. And may our lives be changed and set aflame, ourselves and one another, for the life-changing work of the gospel, through our attention to our scriptures. Amen. Hello, St. Mary's. One of the things that I experience as a pastor is that as I'm putting a sermon together, there's often a lot of material that ends up kind of on the editing room floor and doesn't make it in into a Sunday morning sermon. Please save your jokes about how long my sermons are. But the idea is that there's often a lot that I can't find a way in and I was more focused on sort of giving a good word to you all than to telling somebody else's story yesterday. But as I was prepping this this sermon on liturgy and scripture, I wanted to tell so badly a story of one particular Christian whose life was changed by their encounter with scripture. And I'll tell you, he's changed your life and my life as well. And so I thought this forum might be a a place to go ahead and tell that story. And it is the story of Martin Luther. Many of us are familiar with Luther's story. Of course, we know that Luther was... He was just a regular guy, mostly, and the story, sort of almost the myth goes that he got caught in a rainstorm one time, and there was lightning all around and flashing, and he swore in the middle of this rainstorm that if God got him out of the storm, didn't strike him with lightning, that he would become a monk. Obviously, he survives the storm, and indeed, he enters an Augustinian monastery. But what he found there was not a closer life with God. What he found was a lot of resentment. This goes to the, the idea that just because we deal with God doesn't mean that we love God. And here's what he wrote in one of his letters. He wrote, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteousness of God who punishes sinners, and secretly I was angry with God. Again, he's in a world where he's devoted his life to God and yet he's harboring this deep anger. And so this is a remarkable story, like how is it that the founder of sort of what we come to know as the Protestant Reformation, how does he start it from a place of anger? Well, through his daily rhythms, through the liturgy that Luther would have to go through as a monk day by day by day, so much of his work was about interacting with and meditating upon the scriptures. And Luther was particularly bothered by one passage. And it's, it's out of the book of Romans, chapter 3, in particular verse 21. But it might be worth it for you to go back and read all of chapter 3 if you're interested in this story at all. But he writes this. He says, At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I have heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. As an aside, again, this is Romans chapter 3, verse 21. It said, There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered into paradise itself through open gates. And I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had beforehand handed the word righteousness of God. This is an incredible story. Luther enters the monastery out of obligation in a burdened state. He hated God. But it was this particular this idea, this the righteousness of God, as he meditated upon it day and night, as he chewed upon it, as he listened so very carefully, trying to figure this out, this really difficult notion. And what he discovered is that the righteousness of God is not the law. It is not this burden that weighs us down and shows us how terrible it is. The righteousness of God is the gift of God that lives inside of us. And once that opened to him, Luther's world changed forever. And by the way, so did the entire Western world because the Protestant Reformation is the most important movement in the last 500 years of the church. And he said that his heart moved from anger to love and it was through meditation on the scriptures and the world was changed. And friends, this story is such a powerful illustration about how liturgy and careful listening to the scriptures can create a new reality in your heart and in mine. And it created a new reality for the world to the point where even those Christian communities that have rejected Luther's understanding have kind of come along in the last hundred years or so and said, actually, you know what? Luther was right about that. The righteousness of God is a gift. It is not an obligation. It is not a burden. It is not a law. It is a gift given to every one of us. And that is indeed why we sit in a Protestant church, because we learned to love God through meditation on the scriptures. And so I challenge you, as you go through your week, as you pray through our prayer list, as you engage with the church on a variety of levels, we invite you to dive into the scriptures. And if you need a place to start, start with your favorite story. Google it up, figure out where it is, start with your favorite story. And if you don't have one, I invite you to go to the Gospel of John. I've always found John to be really powerful. And we referenced yesterday some of the first ideas are the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I invite you to start there and have a conversation about what you're reading. And in that, may our heart be freed from fear, freed from burden, freed from sort of the heaviness of obligation that we are not what we should be. May we engage with the love of God once more through the life-changing word of the scriptures. I pray that you would know that this week and however you engage with scriptures. Peace and good, y'all.